Heavenly Father, we praise you for this morning, and we lift up the hallelujahs, the praise God to you. We pray this morning that you would be exalted and pleased with our worship here. We thank you that you are moving in every human heart. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us here today, for the empowering presence of your Holy Spirit in each believer's life. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have to worship you in this place. Thank you for our country. We thank you for providing us with this campus. We thank you for the future and hope we have in Jesus Christ. And this morning, Lord, we know that there are many different uh, representatives of different situations here in this room. Each one of us has a set of circumstances that we're dealing with. We pray, Lord, that you would minister through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit to each one of us today that we would remember who and what you are and rejoice in the fact that you are a great, mighty, and the only God. We thank you for our children, and we pray for them, and for those who care for them. We pray that they each one would grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for each one of us here, Lord, that we would also grow in our knowledge of you. But beyond that, Lord, that you would cause us, through the days you give us, to act upon what we do know and what we believe. And Lord, we thank you for our servicemen and women around the world. We do pray for them, especially those who are believers, and some are in harm's way. And we pray, Lord, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ to have a a reasoned answer for a hope that lies within them to their fellow service people. And, Lord, we thank you for blessing us with this day of life. We thank you for the fact that you are the God of all comfort in our difficulties and loss. We thank you that you are a mighty God who is preparing us for a future and a hope in heaven. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. If you were listening uh, to Kevin as he read the passage out of 1 Corinthians, very familiar passage, and the problem with familiarity of passages is we tend to think we already know it all and we turn them off. And, uh, but notice in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the instructions for the Lord's table, the command that is given, it's given twice. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And I was wondering, uh, that's always a challenge to me personally as I get ready for the communion, the Lord's Table Sunday, is what do I personally remember? And that's my challenge to you, is what do you remember about the Lord Jesus Christ when you partake of the elements of the Lord's Table, the bread and the cup, as we go through this in a few moments. But let me tell you about some of the things I remember. I remember the first communion that still sticks out in my mind. I was probably four or five years old. At Berkeley Baptist Church in North Denver, it was my grandparents and my parents' church, and uh, I guess I had to go too, even though I was a little pagan. But for some reason, my parents, who were in the choir, and in those days, the choir stood up behind the pulpit, and in Berkeley Baptist Church, there was a magnificent painting above the baptismal of the Mount of the Holy Cross in the Rocky Mountains. I was always fascinated by that, and the place seemed so gigantic with the oak and the and the, and the dark stained pews, and for some reason, my sister and I were in the clear back, back there, way in the back of the auditorium of the sanctuary, and uh, my sister, who was five years older than myself, she had the responsibility of making sure I behaved. Well, she gave up during communion, and I remember she was giving me the side eye as I was down between the pews doing something, and uh, suddenly I felt the hair on the back of my neck kind of stick up like, you know, there's... The, Danger, danger, warning. And I looked up over the back of the pew back there, and here's my dad in the choir loft in his black robes scooting out 
getting out and coming down that aisle. And the aisle was not long enough, by the way. It seemed like a long aisle, but it was not long enough. And I could see him coming, and he looked like Martin Luther heading for the uh, Wittenberg Castle with his 95 Thesis. And the next thing I do, I remember, is uh, I miraculously flew out the door of the sanctuary, and then my memory left me. So, But uh, that was my memory of the first communion I ever took, or I was ever part of, and not part of in a good way. But it wasn't until after I was 28 years old that I realized the importance of communion at the Lord's table and the wonderful fact that we are to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to us or for us. And so today we are going to take a break from sermon series and we're going to look at the Lord's table a little bit. And we're going to remember, and so my challenge to you is what do you remember when you partake of the elements of the Lord's table? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should have some pretty good memories. You know, uh, this past week, uh, we were preparing for this memorial service yesterday, and we were going through photographs, the family was, and uh, Leslie mentioned that when she looks at photographs, it brings back the memories. It brings back the memories, and I know that too, and that's why we have photographs, and we have phones and computers and albums full of photos of our families and loved ones, and there's a history there. And uh, it brings back memories, doesn't it? When we look at these images, these images, we look and it brings back uh, memories of what uh, our family is like and was like. And so this morning, we're going to remember together, we're going to go to a photo album in the Old Testament, God's photo album of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We're just going to do some snapshots here, and we're going to look at Jesus Christ as we go through Psalm uh, 22, 23, and 24. Uh, of course, we won't cover all of them in depth. We are just going to do a, just a quick look at these snapshots out of the Psalms. But in these Psalms, these three Psalms, they portray the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll explain that in a moment. But we are going to remember together before we partake of the elements of the Lord's table. We're going to remember the greater work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in the past, but the present and the future, that Jesus Christ is the living God. He is our Savior, our Messiah come to give us salvation. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, my memory banks get kind of fuzzy about some things, and so I need to be reminded. In fact, if we were to look at that one word, remember, all through Scripture, we'd find many, many occurrences used in the Old Testament, the New Testament, of how we are to remember. Old Testament Israel was to remember what God and his faithfulness and their release and their deliverance from bondage in Egypt and uh, many other things to remember, to remember all the time. Well, the Lord's Supper, of course, again, theologians debate uh, what is really meant here. Uh, The Lord's Supper is uh, debated among theologians, among different church traditions, and doctrinally, of course, we have uh, positions which take transubstantiation. In other words, Jesus is actually literally body and blood when we partake of these elements. There's consubstantiation, Uh, which declares that uh, the elements don't really change, but the presence of Christ is present in and under the elements, whatever that means. And then there's symbolic commemoration where it is a time of renewal and obedience to the will of God. But also uh, being biblicists, in other words, the Bible is our informer. The Bible informs our doctrine. A biblicist, we approach it as a memorial time, and that's why Jesus used the words, remember me. When we remember somebody, we have a memorial 
We have a day called Memorial Day where we remember those who died for our country and died for the freedom that we enjoy. And so Jesus Christ, in that sense, we are remembering what he did, but also we shouldn't stop there at the first Easter, the first Resurrection Sunday, but we should continue to think about what Jesus is doing presently and in the future. So I think the bigger question is not... is theologians talk about it, especially as we live in a very distracted age, uh, we maybe shouldn't worry so much about the classical debates of the content of the Lord's table, but uh, maybe it's a better question to ask. Maybe we should invert that question. And the question which we have to wrestle with is not, in what way is the Lord present in his supper? Instead, the question should be, in what way are we present? In what way are you and I present in the Lord's table? So we remember, we are to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so that is one reason we're going to revisit this photo album, essentially, out of the book of Psalms, of these three Psalms, to give us a snapshot of the Lord Jesus Christ today before we partake of these elements. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 fit really well together. And there's a purpose in that. Psalm 22 speaks of the coming Savior, Uh, who suffered. Psalm 23 speaks about the shepherd who guides us day by day. And Psalm 24 speaks of the sovereign Lord of glory, the one who is in control of all things. These Psalms, so Jesus, they show and and, and picture for us Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, In fact, I encourage you, and you may have already done this because we've talked about this in years past, but If you write in your Bible, which I encourage that you put a cross above the beginning of Psalm 22, a shepherd's crook above Psalm 23, and a crown above Psalm 24, and that will help you remember the contents of these psalms, the cross, the crook, and the crown. Derek Kidner, who is probably my favorite commentator on the book of the Psalms, he says so much in so few words, and he is so easy to understand, but he writes this, about Psalm 22, where we will begin. He said, no Christian can read this psalm, Psalm 22, without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. It is not only a matter of prophecy, minutely filled, fulfilled, but, it is, but of the sufferer's humility there. It is no plea for vengeance in his vision of worldwide ingathering of the Gentiles. The New Testament Writers recorded and recognized that this psalm, in fact, it's called a messianic psalm, approaching and anticipating the coming Messiah, the Savior, speaks of Jesus suffering on the cross. Both Mark and John refer to this psalm in this. But how could the psalmist have so accurately described the crucifixion, a Roman crucifixion, something that happened hundreds of years later? And at the time this psalm was written, there was no such thing as the Roman crucifixion because there were no Romans at that time. And so it would not even been invented as an instrument of death until hundreds of years later. And so Jesus is the Savior in Psalm 22. If you take your copy of Scripture, we won't read all of it. I'll just read some select portions of it. But we're going to see, first of all, there is perplexity in uh, suffering. There's a plea for divine nearness, and praise is universal in this psalm. A very interesting psalm, and if you would take the time later, you can read through it and glean much from it. But there is perplexity. Remember, these are psalms of David, ascribed to David uh, in his life as the great poet of Israel. Perplexity and suffering. Follow along as I read verse 1, verse, uh, chapter 22 of Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We've heard that before at Easter time, haven't we? With Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from the, my deliverance are the words of my groaning. So this is great suffering here. Verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate their lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And so it's the very thing that happened on the cross of Calvary on Mount Calvary there when Jesus Christ was crucified. So there's perplexity in the suffering. The first 11 verses alternate between cries and descriptions of suffering and prayers for relief in these first 11 uh, verses. And there's gruesome details about what's going to happen. We see a picture of utter humiliation, of course, which our Savior suffered for you and for I, for myself. And then there's a plea in 11 through 21 for divine nearness. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. He repeats this in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O may you help hasten to my assistance. There is prayer for and a plea for divine nearness. Verse 15 says, you have laid me in the dust. You have laid me in the dust. Who could have done this? Not the fierce bulls, the roaring lions, the pack of dogs, or the evil gang, but rather the, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me in verse 1? Isaiah 53.10 tells us it was the Lord's good plan to crush the Savior. And Isaiah tells us why he did that. In verse Isaiah 53.5, he was wounded and crushed. Why? For our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. Isaiah 53, that great passage that foretold the suffering of the Savior for you and for I, for the sins of the whole world. So perplexity, a plea for divine nearness. Praise is universal. Look at verse 22, verse 22, where he says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Something happened between verse 21 where he says, save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. And then he starts praising God. There is praise that is universal here. Verses 30 and 31, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is referring to you too. And all of those who have gone before us and the generations in the thousands of years since this psalm was written, since the time of David, those who will be born are informed that he has performed it, that the Savior has come and he has taken our place on Calvary. And so there seems to be desperation at the beginning of this psalm, but then praise, it continues in praise. The second half is a description of a feast in verses 25 through 29 perhaps alluding to the peace offering, the feast in Leviticus 7. And as far as the New Testament goes, it may refer to the feast that Jesus spoke of where the poor, crippled, lame, and blind will be invited in Luke 14. And then the book of Revelation talks about a feast. To end all feasts, it's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.9. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we look forward to the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. Okay, whose wedding is it? 
Well, if the bridegroom is Christ, as he's described in the New Testament, he is the, the bridegroom of the church, and the church is declared as the bride. And so if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are part of his church, and we are on the road towards this place in glorification where there is the wedding supper of the Lamb. I don't know what that looks like, but it is a feast to end all feasts. It is the consummation of the church age. It is the consummation and the beginning of our life eternal in the new Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus Christ. Philip P. Bliss was a composer, a hymn writer, and he wrote this hymn, this old hymn. It was entitled, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And it's based upon this, this psalm. He says, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In verse 5 of that hymn, he says, When he comes, our glorious King, all is ransomed home to bring. Then anew will song, this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We just finished singing a praise song, which mentioned hallelujah, and that's basically a Hebrew, Hebrewism of praise God, the great hallel of Yah, which is God. Praise God, and so we sing that praise God. And so that is the cross, Jesus the Savior in Psalm 22. It continues on, David, a shepherd in his youth, if you remember, moves now to describe the shepherd for our lives in this very familiar psalm, Psalm 23, Psalm 23, with the shepherd's crook. Notice the, as it begins in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words. Five words that you need to memorize if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. All you need for eternity is packed into those five words. The. He is the only God, as the first commandment said. He isn't a God, a Lord. He is the Lord. He is the God. There is none higher than him. The second word is Lord. This name emphasizes his amazing grace, love, and faithfulness to his plan, his purposes, and to you and I. He will not fail. He will never fail. He is righteous and holy. And then the third word is that little word is. Is. That's a present tense verb which shows that God is active and living. He's living now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The fourth word is my. My. Isn't that wonderful? God is not an abstract power. He wants to be your personal shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And that fifth word is shepherd. He loves and cares for his sheep, even dying for them. For most of us, we've probably lost uh, the, the Middle Eastern picture of a shepherd. And yet a shepherd was there to protect, to provide for, to feed the sheep, to care for them day and night. And so I shall not want in verses 1 through 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads beside me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then verse 4, even though I shall walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. You are with me. I shall not fear. And it goes on to say, your rod and your staff comfort me. Those were the tools of the shepherd. The rod was for protection against the enemy who would come in and, and, and scatter the sheep and kill the sheep, it's protection. The staff is for correction and rescue. And when sometimes we go down the wrong path, he rescues us. He uses his staff in that sense. And then verses 5 and 6, he talks about the dwelling place we have. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness She'll follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The dwelling place. 
this imagery that we see. He shifts the imagery. We're no longer sheep, but now we are a, a guest of honor at a sumptuous feast. And isn't it interesting that feasts are frequent themes throughout Scripture? Matthew threw a banquet for Jesus and his disciples, and the enemies, the Pharisees, complained about all those awful people that were at that banquet. The Pharisees said to the disciples, why does he eat with such scum in Mark chapter 2? Later in the Gospels, the Pharisee invites Jesus to a a banquet in Luke 7, but neglects to anoint his head with oil, which was a, a, a thing of honor for him. Instead, a woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet at this banquet. Another banquet is mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Here the young woman says, He brings me to the banquet hall so everyone can see how much he loves me. Isn't that interesting? A picture of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 23, the good shepherd invites us, the scum, basically, to his banquet to show how much he loves us. And instead of us anointing his head with oil, he anoints our head with oil. According to this, we get the honor, we get the acclamation because of what Jesus Christ has done. We may think that we might be excluded, but Jesus Christ, if you believe in him for everlasting life, you are in his forever family. What a joy it is to know that we've been invited to this banquet, that he honors us, and our cup truly overflows with blessing. Another old hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, who was blind, wrote many, many old hymns, but she wrote this hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus does all things well. Do you believe it? Does Jesus do all things well? Psalm 23, this snapshot tells us that no matter what we face, whatever we're going through, Jesus has your best experience and willingness to go with him ahead. King David now rejoices in the one who is truly sovereign in Psalm 24, this next snapshot. Jesus is the sovereign, sovereign God. He's the all-creating one. Look at verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is the creator God, Jesus Christ, and the hall of the Trinity were involved in the creation of everything that exists. Creation ex nihilo is what theologians and philosophers call it. Creation out of nothing. God is so powerful, he created all things out of just with his word. And he is the all holy one. Look at verse 3. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? That is a good question. Who is the one can approach a righteous, holy, all-powerful God and make defense of who and what they are? Well, he goes on to tell us here that uh, the one who can ascend to the holy place is the one who has clean hands, pure heart, has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully. He is the one to receive a blessing from the Lord, the righteousness of God for his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. But let me ask you the question. We sing this. This is actually a song we sing. But who is, who is righteous and holy that has clean hands can approach a righteous, holy God? Nobody, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way that we stand before a righteous, holy God is because of the righteousness imputed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul explains that in Romans very clearly. 
The only standard we have before a righteous, holy God, the only defense we have is I believe in Jesus for everlasting life, and he has provided it all for me. Jesus is the sovereign God in verse 24. And also, he is the all-victorious one. Look at 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Jesus, the sovereign. This psalm may have been written when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. It had been gone for quite a while, and they brought it back in in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And so for the Israelite, the the pageantry and this event of bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which was representative of the very presence of their Yahweh God, back to the Temple Mount, back to Mount Zion was a place. It was bigger than any celebration the world has known in, in that and it was built, the Ark of the Covenant built soon after the Exodus and followed, went with the people, but now in Jerusalem had a permanent home. And so they were excited about that. As they approached the city, the gates would have been opened, commanded to open. King David came in, but the King of Glory was yet to come. A thousand years later, the King of Glory came to this world as a lowly baby in Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus Christ was born there where David was born. Jesus grew up and entered the ancient gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Remember that? Riding on this this donkey. A week later, he was crucified and buried and rose again, ascending to the right hand of the Father, that his rule might fill the entire universe, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. David calls here for the ancient doors to be open and let the King of glory enter. Jesus asks us, am I part of your life? Is this where you reside? Are you residing in in my life he is the crown so the the cross the crook and the crown as we remember these snapshots of the lord jesus christ and that takes us to this remembrance of what jesus christ has done it takes us to this place where we are going to celebrate communion together and i'd ask the men